Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC A25. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, it's been a few days. You got us a jam-packed show so that we can talk plenty of basketball and don't have to live the pain too much, but how are you feeling a few days later? It is painful. It is going to take a long time for the city to get through. Like, if you try to think of the worst losses in Philadelphia, Phillies, just Phillies, don't talk about all the other disasters that the city has had. <laughs> this has got to be top five. It's up there. Is I mean, that- look, you've, you've, you've talked for years about Joe Carter. Um, when, when Ryan Howard ran down the line and blew out his Achilles, that's up there. Not only because of that, that game and they should have beat that team but because of what it meant for the future of the franchise. I wasn't alive and, in 1964, so I don't know about that one, but I always hear about that collapse. Yeah, but but here here's the weirdest part of it. Had they lost to the Braves, nobody would have thought twice about it, right? But they got by the Braves, and it looked like just this was it. It like, just looked like they were meant to be this team, the fun and you could see them tightening up as this series went on. Yes. I, I won't call it a choke because Arizona played incredibly well. But watching them steal bases, it wasn't even stealing. It was just like, hey, I'm going to second. Hey, I'm going to third. There just seems, I don't know if it's the whole league because, I mean, you've talked about the statistics with stolen bases, but. I think they're going to have to fix this. And I'm a guy who likes small ball and stone bait, but this has just gotten to the point when you have the best catcher in the game and he can't get anybody out because, because they're running on the pitcher like this. What do you do? Well, it's, it's easier for them to predict it when you only have two throwovers. It's, it's the mound disengagements that seem to allow the runners to go. And look, I was surprised that Arizona didn't run more early in the series. I mean, they did not run until they are. Game they six. apparently were too because they figured it out. Yeah, and, they, I mean, and in Corbin Carroll, he's a real guy. I like this. He's going to be around for a long time. They were up two nothing in the series. They were up three two coming home. The bats went silent. They were eleven for sixty three in the last two games while going two for seventeen with runners in scoring position. They left 17 runners on base, Jeff, in the last two games. And it was something we I, I talked believe about in the last season. game. And I believe in the last game, the last 17 batters that came to the plate did not get a hit. I, I mean, the number of strikeouts, they didn't even make contact. 11 strikeouts in game seven, 10 in game six, 11 in game four, 13 in game three. That's 45 combined strikeouts in the games that they lost in that series. And they didn't seem to change their approach at all. They were all, right. all swinging your, for the fences. As your sports therapist, I now tell you we're done. Wait, wait, I, I didn't tell you the worst. No, 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 we're done. We, we're, we're done. We're done with the negative. No, now I didn't tell you the, you the worst part of the negative. That, that's why. Nope, we're not done. Nope. I have to tell you. See, you have to suffer. Yeah, no, no, I did suffer. You, you, more you than need next... to continue to suffer. I, I see. I gave you the chance. We got this out of our system. We're going to be able to talk basketball for most of the rest of the show with two great guests. And and you can't stop. I just and I was going to give you a chance to talk Phillies just a tiny bit more, but focus on the future. I, I will. But you don't want to do it. So I, go ahead and suffer. I just have to tell you the worst part of the loss was the next morning 
when my six-year-old no my six-year-old started to cry oh, okay. because he can't watch the Phillies again for six more months because he fell asleep during the game so, so I had to relive to suffer, I had to well that's the thing you have always said to me why don't you ever believe that your team is going to win this is exactly hmm. why I have been trained for these moments well, in my see, but I just fandom. gave you the formula to not train the next generation, <laughs> to suffer shortly and move on. Feel the pain, but not the suffering we, is the way. So now I'm just going to ask you the two quick questions. We don't need to spend 10 minutes on it. We won't even have 10 minutes. There's Look, Kimbrell's not coming back. You don't have to spend five seconds on that. If he does, nobody's going to the ballpark <laughs> um, or nobody's staying to the late innings. Do they bring back Reese Hoskins and do they bring back Aaron Nola at what he was asking for, which was eight years, $200 million? I think they're both gone. Not because I want them to be gone or want them here. I think Nola is going to, there's a very shallow pitching market and I think he's going to get longer years and more money than the Phillies want to offer. And Reese Hoskins, you know, Dombrowski tried to say it yesterday. It's not on Bryce, but they have to decide who's playing where on this team. Is mm-hmm. Bryce an outfielder? Or is he a first baseman? What, positions do you need to fill what money does reese want coming off of an injury i think there's a lot of questions i think in the end both of them will not be here next year are you surprised (laughs) that i actually took a like a position i know you yeah but but you know what you disagree there's there's part of me that hopes at some point you acknowledge that you wanted to trade reese hoskins Again, and, and I know you always fence at this and say, I didn't want to. I was just asking the question all the time. I asked you. Can that- you imagine if Reese Hoskins had been on this team since the beginning of the year? I, because I, you had half a year where you had Cody Clemens and, and the gang in first base. I think it would have been very different. And you retell yeah. that Reese Hoskins story very differently than I did. We were talking about who are the players with value at the time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I wanted to trade him. It was that I thought he was the player with value. You have made clear, and it's become even more clear since we had that conversation, that he was a part of the heart of this team. How much he so meant so to much this so team. that yeah, how many times do you have a player that's out for the season who's been in the dugout and was still so integral to that team? No, I look. I agree with you. I mean, his, right. but, but that doesn't right, so, mean that they right, bring stop. him back. Okay, here we go. We only got a couple minutes left until we have guests. So now I'm going to ask you a basketball question because we got to lead into two great guests. Did you watch the Sixers last night or did you watch Thursday Night Football? I watched everything. I had Thursday Night Football, the Sixers, and the Flyers when I finally found that the Flyers were streaming on Hulu and ESPN+. Plus. The Sixers <laughs> looked fun, and it was good to see a team that had movement after they gave the ball off. And that I wasn't sure what I'd see. They played well. Do I want to win? Yes. Do I not want to deal with the hardened drama? Yes. Okay, but, can I ask you just one question about this team? Sure. Do we really need PJ Walker starting in this team? PJ Tucker is, no. is, is the defense going to be so much worse than 118 points? No, I, I happen to like the more athletic lineup. And and look, if Jaden Springer can learn how to shoot, his defense is really good. No, but, but who? But can't you try Paul Reed in the four slot? I think he's going to try a lot of things. This was game one. I, I think that he's going to see how his players play. I don't know that. I mean, look, I don't know Nick Nurse as well, but I don't know that he's going to be married to guys the way that Doc Rivers was. Uh, I'm just not sure about that. But I, they they looked athletic last night. Uh, and again, there there wasn't as much standing around after handing the ball off. There was movement to to create spacing and put people in different positions. That was exciting to see. Well, that's because you don't have a ball hog on the court. Well, he'll be holding. Do you think is there be- anybody on this team that needs basketball freedom right now? Do you think he'll be back? On the well, court. they won't let him on the. They won't let him on the plane. I so. know. So, do they let him on the court? <laughs> they, 
the question is whether or not he's going to show up to Wells Fargo and security's not going to let him in the building. Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where this goes next. I, all I know is I was very happy, like I told you, to see that Chicago had a team meeting players only after the first game because the more teams that are in this, the less I have to see about Terrence Mann I just, not being offered I, I just by the don't Clippers. understand why you think that anyone on any other team sees this and says, I want an old, broken down, selfish, unmotivated, former superstar on my team. I didn't say that people would. I did, I, said, did I describe him properly? Yes, I just don't want to deal with okay. it anymore. Why don't we leave it there and let's go to some of our basketball guests. Jeff, it's basketball season. Uh, you know how much we love college basketball. Let's let's take a few minutes, get back uh, our man, Penn men's basketball coach, Steve Donahue. Coach, thanks for the time again. Hey, it's great to be on, guys. Thanks for having me. You know, we we talked about, before you got on your background, you've got the palestra in the background as we do this interview. Um, just talk about that building that you get to go to every work, every day, and that your players get to play in. Yeah, I think it's difficult to put into words what this venue is like, but it is the best uh, college basketball arena, uh, not just to play in, to coach in, but I think what separates it is it's the best venue to go to a game at. You're intimately involved in the sport when you're here. The last row is about, seems like about 10 feet from the floor and it fits almost 9,000. Um, just an incredible place uh, that I get to call work. How important is it to stress to your players, to these athletes, the history of Penn basketball, of the palestra? I think that's a huge piece of what we do in recruiting and what our guys eventually decide to come here. Uh, it's just dripping with tradition, um, walk our concourse and see the museum of the, the what happened over the last, which will be a hundred years here in a couple of years in this building is pretty remarkable. I don't think the guys take it for granted to think that they can play 60 home games of their career in this environment is pretty special. Talk about the excitement this time of year. Um, you know, the, the city's, been on fire with what's going on with the Phillies, obviously ending the Eagles. And here you are ready to start college basketball. What's it like for a coach this time of year? Yeah, I think, um, and I've been other places. I just think Philadelphia is the number one college basketball major city in the country. Um, we value it. We care. it. I, I look at the big five and now that Drexel's in there is our fifth franchise. Um, that's what it is. I mean, um, and we're all striving for greatness. And uh, this time of year for me, um, this is what I love about coaching. I love the beginning. I love the end. I love the the ups and downs and the competitiveness of it. And here it is. It's that time of year. Just jump on the, uh, you know, the treadmill as the season goes and enjoy every moment of it. You know, even though the Phillies unfortunately did not make the World Series, we've 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 had the opportunity to kind of be in the spotlight as Philadelphia because of the fans and the way that the fans are this extra piece to teams. What is it like to play in this city, where you not only have the support of 
Penn and the alumni from Penn and the students of Penn, but really the entire city that embraces college basketball and the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, as I said, um, I spent five years up in Boston and they just don't care about college athletics there like we care here, in particular college basketball. It's just it's been the big fabric of our sports for so long. Um, like we're going to play Villanova here at the Palestra. It'll be sold out um, and it will be a raucous environment. Uh, and then we'll have a triple header December 2nd at the Wells Fargo with all six of us playing on one day. And that will be a, a special day as well. And where we get a crown of champion for uh, the big five. So it's, it's just a very unique setting for college athletics in a major city. And we get to enjoy it here in Philly. You know, you mentioned this, this game, this day, that's going to be the six teams from Philadelphia. One of the things we've noticed, we wanted to have you on obviously to talk to you about coaches versus cancer. And one of the things I think we've talked to you about and the other coaches about in Philadelphia is that, that you are a fraternity, that the coaches in this city, even though your rivals seem to be this fraternity of coaches as part of the community, as part of coaches versus cancer. What, what is it like for you to be part of this unique fraternity? I think the unique fraternity is, is a great way of putting it. Um, I, I have colleagues all over the country that are just don't understand how we can be so close as a coaching fraternity here in Philadelphia. And I do think it has a lot to do with coaches versus cancer and what Fran Dunphy and Phil Martelli grew over 25 years ago into what it is today. Um, that has a lot to do with us being so tight. We know we have incredible opportunity to bring purpose to our occupation, to our program. And that's what Coaches versus Cancer with the city of Philadelphia allows us to do. Talk to us about this upcoming season. A lot of fresh faces. You're kind of turning the page for the program with a, a new start here. Talk to us about how you prepare for that as a coach with this new opportunity here. Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, like a lot of teams in college basketball, uh, it was surprising for us. We lost a, you know, a, you know, a senior essentially that transferred to St. John's, and then we had a senior another senior starter who uh, retired for some injuries that he's been plagued with. So we got the opportunity. I look at two returning guys in Clark Slackard and Nick Spinoza, who started last year, and guys like George Smith, Eddie Holland, who had played during their careers. Uh, and then guys maybe like Camp Thrower, a sophomore who, who I feel will be a real integral part of our team. And then we got five new faces. Um, but it's been, for me, I love it. I think it's an exciting time of the year trying to put together a team uh, that I feel can be competitive, that will have growing pains. But at the end of the day, when it comes to challenging for an Ivy League championship, I think we have a team that has the making of that if we do what we need to do over the next couple months leading up to the league championships. You know, you mentioned the transfer portal and not to to have you speak on, on Jordan himself, but just the portal in general. How is it for a coach these days where you coach players hard and, and want to teach them 
But at the same time, you don't want them to walk out the door and go someplace else because they think they can get a different opportunity somewhere. I, I think uh, I, I'm torn by it in general. Um, it's it's a part of obviously what we have to deal with. I'm reading a book. Adam Grant, one of our terrific professors, just came out with a book called Hidden Potential. And one of the things he touches on is that, you know, the growth comes with adversity for all of us. Uh, we've all learned our trades and our crafts by going through hard times and getting through it. I think the transfer portal skips that. If, if something's difficult, let's go to greener pastors. And for us in this profession, this is the time in their lives that we need to really allow the kids to struggle, get over those humps and figure it out. And unfortunately, I think the way college basketball is right now, some of that's being lost. And I don't know if that's for the betterment of what we're here for, to help and educate and grow these guys in a really uh, important time of their lives. You know, we talked to um, some athletic directors when the when the portal first started and their concern was similar was the idea that that athletes wouldn't go through the hard times, that if there was an easier out, they would take that easier out if they could go start somewhere else instead of staying behind and doing as as a coach. When you're recruiting, do you have to look for a different kind of mentality now? Do you have to look for players that, you know, or you hope are going to want to do the hard work, not just to to be a starter or be a good basketball player, but recognize that if things don't go your way, that if you give it time and you work hard, ultimately you will be rewarding yourself, not just on a basketball court or a football field, but also in life. Hey, Jeff, I think we're, we're an outlier in college basketball. That's one recruit in probably 25 years that has left us in transfer. Uh, but you're exactly right. In our recruitment, this is a different circumstance here. One, you're going to get really challenged academically. Your parents are going to have to make a substantial financial investment where we don't have scholarships and all the other things that schools are offering. So we kind of do that in recruiting, and we have our ways to really get to who we feel will really value this. Um, and I agree with you. I just think we have an incredible product here that if you're willing to sacrifice and go through the hard times and really take a, a little different path than a lot of college basketball players do, I think 10, 20, 30 years from now, you're really going to be grateful that you took that path to whatever you're doing in life. You know, well, that the NIL, let's put that aside because now we're almost at the season. The, the hard work's been done for recruitment. Obviously, you never stop doing that. But now the season's right around the corner. What is it like for you? You go through this up and down in the course of a year where the season ends and then you have to go through recruitment and playing for that. What is it like for you as a coach to get excited about the beginning of a new season? I'm, uh, I'm so spoiled with what I do for a living. Um, I love this time of year. Like to just... The last six months are figuring out what our team's going to look like and implementing uh, tactical things that we can do to, to bring out the strength in these guys and the excitement in the gym and watching. I get to watch 18 to 22 year olders that are so excited about the beginning of the year. And, and I feel it. And 
it feels the same way for me as it has for the previous 30 years that I've done this. And um, it's just a, an exciting time. Um, and then it hits you, whether it's positive or negative, and then how you answer those ups and downs really determine where you're going to be at the end of the year. So um, as a program, we're excited. Coaching staff, players, we can't wait to get going. I'm just curious, you know, you're somebody who watches the landscape of college basketball. You're at home in the Ivy, but lots of teams changing conferences with realignment. And does that impact you at all as a school who knows where you are? Or, you know, what is the the impact of that? I think for me, it's more an impact on, unfortunately, where I think college athletics is going. Um, that's the biggest fear that, that I have. Um, these two things can be true. Uh, maybe the athletes need to benefit more than just uh, a scholarship and some of the rewards that you see. Uh, and at the same time, the product that we have and the sport we love that energizes our whole country um, may go away. Um, that's That's, unfortunately for me, 10, 15, 20 years from now, I don't know what this is going to look like. And I think that's the shame of it all. We have a product that people really feel a part of. That's It pulls in them their intrinsic feeling that they get about, as you said, Jeff, rooting for Michigan. Will that be there with all this that's going on now? Or will that separate and not make you feel the same way you do feel about your alma mater? That's that's what I look at. That's my fear I have. I think we have something so special. Uh, I would hate to see it change so dramatically and the popularity of it eventually, not right away, eventually diminish. To me, the biggest concern, concern if I were you, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but as a coach, is, is the change in college sports from a regionalized uh, competition to a nationalized competition so, so that for coaches, you don't only have the preparation of the travel you used to do for a lot of these teams, Michigan, whatever it is, where you could get on a bus and go, or you, it was a one-day trip and you'd be back, to now look at the Big Ten, look at the ACC. These are national conferences now. And while college football may be able to afford this, the rest of the sports, how do they afford it? And how is you as a coach deal with the fact that your, your student-athletes are now on the road more? So once again, Jeff, we're an outlier, uh, but my time at BC um, really gave me a, a front row view of what it is that you're talking about. It's the, the honest answer is it's not sustainable. The other sports will be changing as will basketball and football. They're going to have to figure that out. And the other sports will eventually get back to regional play, which makes total sense. Everything's about who can we watch on TV and the streaming uh, opportunities. The other sports will eventually, to me, be hurt by it, but could benefit with more regional rivalries, all the things that we grew up loving. But I think the, the ship has sailed for basketball and football. That's going to turn into more what you see in the NBA with conferences and divisions built on East Coast, West Coast, those kind of scenarios. 
how much is too much of a good thing? I'm, I'm somebody who used to set my clock around the first two days of the NCAA tournament. I mean, my parents would say I didn't go to class anyway when I was in school, but I made sure that I was not going to class on the first two days of the tourney. Now there's talk of expanding the tourney even more past the 68. Um, you know, we talked the realignment. Like, at what point do you, do you reach this tipping point in a sport where the chase for dollars means you lose the meaning that you're talking about the the connection because it's so disparate. I think um, I, I think you're right on. Uh, I thought I think this will eventually diminish what we feel about college sports. I think it's already happening. Um, but that's the chase of the almighty dollar. When is that ever good? Um, and I think that's what you're seeing. Um, you know, the the people that will say. Um, well, it's, this is what the money does, and it's good, and we build it up, and there's no way that this is really going to be good for the fans, the the people that really that you need invested in your program, because it doesn't make a lot of sense. You can lose interest quickly, and another generation of not ex- what you and I grew up with not existing. Well, to me, just uh, really eliminate the popularity of sport and eventually change it maybe back, you know, way past my time here, right back to the way it originally was. Because it's, to me, it's not sustainable. Well, look, Coach, watching Penn basketball is fun. It's a good thing. But one of the other things that gives you the opportunity to do, the other coaches in the city, is to do the coaches versus cancer. What does it mean to you to be part of that organization? I I can't tell you. Uh, for me as a head coach, and I've been grateful to have the leadership of Fran Dunphy when I was an assistant, um, just to be able to bring purpose to any of our lives that's more than just what we do for a living. And here I have an opportunity to make an impact uh, with so many ways in a positive way to help uh, with this coaches versus cancer, people that are going through it, and then also allow uh, our players to see what's really important in life, not just winning, but helping others that are less fortunate than you. Uh, That's what coaches versus cancer allows me to do. So I know, you know, we have our big luncheon coming up November 2nd at the Hilton. Uh, Amy Fadul, who does an incredible job with us, she'll be hosting and be there running it. All six Division One coaches will be there. Um, I love for new people to come. We have an incredible following. Uh, that's what makes this city special. I'll go again. We tried this in Boston. It's not the same passion for college basketball. These events don't take off like this one. Um, so we'll have John Feinstein there as well, emceeing it, and a great college sports writer. But anybody has – uh, interest in coming and being a part of it. We love to have you. Uh, PhillyCVC.org uh, is the way to get a hold of us. And the more, the merrier. It's an incredible event. We're all touched by this horrific disease. Let's crush it, uh, as Phil Martelli would say. Well, that's it. You, you and the other coaches have done so much, uh, dating back now decades, Um to, to help raise awareness, raise money, help families. How important is it as a coach to be that kind of leader for the student athlete, to, to show them 
that sport isn't just about sport and it's not just about you and it's not just about the team, but it's about the community that you live in. Uh, Jeff, it's, it's my biggest responsibility as a, as a coach and a leader uh, to mentor by example, um, whether that's a husband, a father, um, someone doing things like this. And I try to incorporate all of our, our guys into a lot of community service. And I'm sure there's times where they're pulled at their wits end with all we ask, but I'm sure there's, there's a chance when they leave that they understand how important it is to give back. <clears throat> the other part I want to make sure you realize we do very little as coaches. That is difficult. I look at when I go to these events, the amount of volunteers and the people that give their money and their time to this endeavor is incredible in this city. It's, I, I just can't tell you, um, how supportive of all the events we do for coaches versus cancer and for people that give their time and efforts, honestly, way more than coaches. We got a platform that enables us to reach a lot of people, but it's literally not possible if it wasn't for all the work that all these volunteers and all the companies that feel so important to support this uh, coaches versus cancer. It's the community that makes it happen. It's, it's the coaches that, that get to lead it, but you guys clearly have the support of, of so many people to make it happen. Coach Steve Donahue, we wish you a great season. We thank you for always giving some time and, and for what you do, making sure that your players understand and that you understand the role that you serve as a coach leading in this community. Thanks so much for the time. Great. Appreciate it, guys. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And good luck on the season, Coach. Thank you. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. We're lucky to get some time with Roland Lazenby. Let's talk about his new book, Magic, The Life of Irvin Magic Johnson. Roland, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Jason and Jeffrey. You guys doing all right? We got no complaints. I mean, look, we we're in Philadelphia, so we've had a, a week with sports, yeah. but we figured we'd yeah. move right on to basketball and just leave that, that baseball in the rearview mirror. Who Are better? you sure you want to do that? Uh, yes. Well, if, if, if you don't want to talk basketball, I have a really stupid question to ask you. Um, and I admit that it is stupid, but your name is not a common last name. And so I got to ask whether or not you ever anybody ever asked you if you were related to the original James Bond, George Lazenby. Well, let's see. My first name is Roland. You could also <laughs> ask me how many times. I've had people sing Rolling on the River to me. Oh, God. Uh, which started, you know, in early high school whenever Credence brought that out. Uh, yeah, I've been asked about the, the Lazenby connection a lot. Uh, and I will tell you that Jack Kent Cook told me once that I didn't know how to pronounce my own last name. <laughs> Most importantly, what was your response? <laughs> and can you say that on the air? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I I said, well, my father pronounced it Lazenby. I admitted to him, we, you know, we're hillbillies down here in the sticks of the Blue Ridge Mountains, the western part of Virginia. So 
who knows w- w- what that originated at? I, you know, it's, it's a it's an English name. There's a village, Lazenby. I don't know if it's Lazenby or what, but <clears throat> I don't really, I'm not really particular about how people pronounce my name. Wow. It, it would be a, it would have been an immense waste of time to have cared much about that. Wow. All right. Well, now we're going to make you talk a little basketball. Jason, why don't you take it? Good. Oh, I was just referring to the Sixers. I mean, <laughs> of all the heartaches in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we, well, we have another one with the Phillies right now, but we're about to start the one with the Sixers. Oh, Go ahead. <laughs> that's what I'm speaking about. Of all the heartaches in Philadelphia, then to have to turn around and, and face. I, I mean, it's really. Uh, yeah, it was great. The, really the, the Philly season ended and they sent James Harden home. It's just exactly what we wanted to move on to here in Philadelphia. Uh, when are you gonna? When are you gonna? When are you gonna write the book on the process? You've written about all these other great teams. When are you gonna write the book on the process? I, you know, I, uh, I've got to do a Stern project. I've got to do a a LeBron project. I, I'm 71. <laughs> these are fun. Um, this, I, I, you know, I just ruptured my quad, so I'm suddenly. Um, for the first time, really contemplating my mortality and if I should retire, but I don't think I will. I enjoy too much. Well, you've now written over 30 biographies and, and memoirs. You've, you've written about some of the greats in the game from Michael Jordan to, to Kobe, Jerry West. Why magic and why now? Um, you know, it just happened to be the order in which publishers would take them. Um I, I had and and I also had a I got to know magic a, a fairly good bit. I mean, in some ways nobody ever gets to know magic, especially not media people. Some have, but I mean he's so friendly and accessible. And so uh that that was easy in 89, 90 when I was first getting to know him. But I ended up spending a lot more time with the Bulls. And so I got to know that whole group of Jordan and everybody, especially Tex Winter. And coming out of that, I really moved back, started doing Lakers projects. I got to know Kobe. I spent a lot of time with him as a young player. And, uh, you know, from the early stuff, Jerry West had been my old man's hero, so that that was something I, I wanted to write. My old man was one of these old two-handed set shooters out of the hills of southern West Virginia, a basketball nut. Anyway, um, and I wanted to do magic in there, but even before Kobe. But, you know, analytics hadn't just infected sports. It's also infected publishing, and so – Little Brown, my publisher at the time, was worried that there weren't enough internet searches for magic. And so um, Macmillan, my my current publisher, had no such concerns. They knew magic would be a very important story to tell. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think it's a phenomenon of the age, and magic played a major role in it, that nobody gave a hoot about American professional basketball. Now, Eddie Gottlieb there in Philly made a good run at it. You know, he he had ways. He uh, he played jumping Joe Folks, who became the game's first 20-point scorer with the old Warriors. 
He uh, he played jumping Joe Folks enough to run up the points. When Wilt came along, he played him all but four minutes of the whole damn season at one point there to, to make sure those numbers were high. He knew what the NBA learned today. you got to jack up the game so that people score lots of points so that they get on their phones and they're all engaged. But somewhere in the middle, starting about 79, when David Stern began, this lawyer from Proskauer on Times Square began gaining power and was getting ready to, to have a coup d'etat at the NBA and take charge of things. And here come Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, and they've already got the esteemed Dr. J. There's this flood of talent coming into the game that can really actually get something. And right behind them, here comes Michael Jordan. And and suddenly the NBA realizes what Eddie Gottlieb knew in Philly years before, that it's about the players and you've got magnificent players. you got to you got to sell that. And the NBA went from a game where they couldn't sell tickets. They had to book doubleheaders with the Harlem Globetrotters to get people to come. It went to this game that now the whole world has this love affair with NBA superstars. My Michael Jordan book, which came out from Little Brown in 2014, is in 21 languages. The, the 21st happened just this week with Portuguese. The Kobe Bryant book I did is in 12. Magic is already signed up for seven languages. And, uh, you know, these are not easy things. My Magic books, I'm an idiot. It's 800 pages. Who publishes an 800? And Jordan was seven, 700 and some pages. And so that tells you the love and care these foreign publishers have, and they've sold a lot of copies of these books, and nobody gives a hoot who I am. I'm a, I'm a, as big a zero in the equation as you could be, but they love American basketball superstars. You know, you you mentioned 800 pages. You really go all the way back. I mean, you go to his great great grandfather. You, but you coming ahead, you interviewed his high school basketball coaches more than 50 times each. I didn't know about Magic's history with the Lansing busing situation and his brother basically being kicked off the team that he ended up playing on for being black. Can you talk about how Magic even at as an early age was on the cutting edge of community issues. Yes, and thank you for stopping me on that run. I, you know, I I wax poetic about the great overview of the NBA, but I really have spent time on this book and the nuts and bolts of and it it it, it was magic. It was really how we integrated around basketball, which I think is an important American story, but. I was a varsity head coach at age 24 in that era, and I I coached a lot of impressive kids. But the magic I discovered in looking for the organic early years of his life, I, I'm going to tell you, he was a really impressive kid from an impressive family. And, uh, you know, he just did so many things right. He has had such a, you know, and he had... He had difficulties. He had reading difficulties. He worked to overcome those at a young age. He had diction difficulties. He worked to overcome those. And um, none of that really mattered or held him back. He had such a vast emotional gift. 
And in addition to all the athletic skills, I mean, that's, and so the the people running the Lansing schools faced with all this violence, particularly at Everett High School, uh, that had dragged on not one year, two years, several years. And uh, they just knew that he would come in and change things. He And before he ever played a game at Everett High School, the principal called him in and said, we need you to help, you know, calm this situation down, sort this out. And. Magic said, how in the heck am I going to do that? I'm 15 years old. Uh, and had just turned 15. And uh, the principal said, you'll figure it out. And, you know, that's pretty much that's pretty much how he fit into that. And the good things that happened really came out of his sort of uncompromising stewardship. You know, when you think about it, he was seated all this power by the school administration, but then he turned around and held that same administration to task on practical issues about racial integration. Like, how about playing a little black music in the cafeteria? How about having a few black cheerleaders? And and so even at 15, he was standing up to the same people that he was working with, but he did it his own way. Magic is an international star, always has been. How is it that you were able to bring out these stories and stories about the magic behind the scenes that a lot of us just didn't know? Magic seems to his aura has always been this guy with this infectious smile and this positive attitude. And while all of that is there, there is also below the surface, this strength, this quiet strength that he seems to have and, and in not even, you know, tooting his own horn about all the stuff that you write about in your book. Uh, at the same time, an immense control freak. I mean, uh, it, it's a wonder to me that he didn't want to be a coach because he is such a control freak. But yes, um, you know, it's complicated. The same thing was true with Michael Jordan, the life. There was this rich story, this backstory, you know, and both Magic's mother and Michael's mother come off the, the come out of the sharecropping culture in North Carolina that was just brutal. And it was, you know, there in the, the agricultural world, uh, the state that had more um more Ku Klux Klan members than all the other southern states combined. But um you know, people marveled at it. Nobody had really spent a lot of time talking to George Fox or Pat Holland. And Magic was always pretty big about controlling his own narrative. And I mean, fiercely, I, I talked to his mother, had a lovely conversation with his mother at the 1992 All-Star Game in Orlando. And I went over to tell Magic about it. And he looked at me very seriously and said, she shouldn't be telling you my secrets. And when I, when I really, you know, to research a biography, you get into every phase. And I realized he has, he had at one point, 10 siblings, all kinds of family members all over America. And you never hear a peep out of any of them. And he is that kind of control freak. Now, we all want to control our narratives and we all want to, you know, keep our image headed in the right direction. But 
it's so far beyond that with Magic Johnson. He controlled his coaches. He controlled the way the game was played. As Dale Beard, his teammate in high school, told me, a guy who was the best man at Magic's wedding, he said, I couldn't play my game. I, I had to play the way Magic wanted me to play, or I was going to sit on the bench. And um, that level of control freak combined with this tremendous emotional intelligence and this, I mean, you just have to admire his humanity and his ability with people is just, it's, it's beyond rare and uncommon. And so you have to admire all that, but you have to wonder at it too. You know, you talk about his desire for control and the book is interesting because it's balanced. It's not just a puff piece on magic. It it talks about the warts and the, the flaws that he went through. But at the same time, Jerry West said to you that you can see what people do on the floor, but you can't read their heart. You've said the crux of this book shows how magic was a function of his heart. Can you talk more about that side of it? Yeah, because, you know, nobody saw that. Uh, And Jerry West uh, revealed that to me in a 1990 conversation, looking back on magic's career and also looking at the nature of talent scouting. Jerry West, of course, a great talent who then became a, a great talent scout. But but he was telling me that. And Dr. Jack Ramsey, the great coach, obviously, with the Portland Trailblazers and also of college fame in the Philadelphia area, told me in 2004, you know, we didn't – I didn't think Magic could, could work as a pro point guard. And he talked about how Portland, you know, because of his weak left hand, they just victimized him all that freshman year. But it was almost like those reading troubles in sixth grade for Magic. He, he took that weak left hand, and the next year he came back, as Dr. Jack pointed out, those weaknesses weren't there. And he uh, he's had that drive. The, it, it's been um, – and Billy Packer said basically the same thing without really knowing about what Jerry West had told me. You know, Billy Packer, uh, my dear friend who, who also has passed on since I interviewed him for the book, and Billy and I have done five books together. Uh, but um, Billy talked about being a broadcaster for that great Final Four game against Indiana State and Larry Bird and Michigan State and Magic. And he said, none of us, and we were the broadcast team in college basketball, Al McGuire, Dick Unberg, none of us thought that Magic Johnson or Larry Bird, for that matter, would really be able to do anything in pro basketball. And what we did not understand, as Billy says, we had no idea of the heart of either one of those guys, but especially the heart of Magic Johnson. You know, it seems you you mentioned Michael Jordan earlier. It seems that that Magic and Michael were very similar internally, but to the outside world, Magic and Michael are seen very differently. Michael is seen as kind of this cold competitor, while Magic, even though he was just as much a competitor, always had this this smile and air of enjoying the game more. Yeah, it, it believe me, it irritated p- opponents plenty. But you could see, Bine, you could see the sort of the his eyes weren't smiling all the time. 
I mean, he he had the natural smile, but there 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 was a there were a lot of processors going on. He was doing a lot of calculating, and it was not um, it, it was not entirely selfish, or maybe even selfish at all. But his calculating was about winning, and uh, y- y- you know they were um, well. You know, Michael Jordan's hero as a high school junior and senior was Magic Johnson to the point that Michael Jordan began calling himself Magic Mike and his girlfriend bought a vanity plate for his first car, Magic Mike. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and Michael Jordan really was trying to learn to throw no-look passes in high school practice each day. He thought he would be a point guard. Uh, and he got to UNC, and Dean Smith said, lose the magic mic, supposedly. There's only one magic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, th- they uh, that obviously was the beginning of a very interesting timeline for those two, a timeline that carries on pretty strongly today. They're still competing like madmen uh, uh, in in the commercial race, in the boat race for for commerce and business. And it, it might be a canoe race and magic's in the canoe and he's a hundred yards back and paddling furiously, maybe a quarter mile back. You know, you've watched and you, you track it in this book, the game change through the years, but you, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, they sort of were the start of making the NBA more fun, which has now continued into the personalities and the the individualism in the NBA. Can you talk about how Magic and, and Larry and, and Michael, you know, these players you've written about, sort of the leading edge of the NBA that we see today? Well, yeah, you know, they they did it. David Stearns, you know, recognized that. He saw – he didn't know that it was going to be Larry and Magic, but when it happened – you know, he, he soon enough moved in place to become commissioner. He really opened up things to to grow the NBA globally. He grew the NBA as a professional organization. He really focused on marketing and things. Larry O'Brien, the former commissioner before David Stern, did some of the things to, to lead, create the merger of the, uh, uh, the N- NBA and the ABA. But he really was a function of the Kennedy administration and Camelot. He really didn't have his focus on the modern NBA. It was by 79, the regular TV ratings had dropped 25 percent. As we we know, the great game six in Philadelphia in the 1980 championship series between the Lakers and the Sixers was on tape delay. Uh, and, and the teams were losing lots of money. The NBA was not in good shape. It, uh, pro basketball had never been robust in any sense. But uh, David Stern knew to focus on these great players, and it became a succession. Uh, you know, Jordan um, followed right in line, and all of this stuff began to b- blow up. The 92 Dream Team was a red-letter mark. Here comes Kobe and and all of his competitions, and uh, just the, the love and focus when you look at how downtrodden, how victimized and put upon black males were in our culture, in our um, um, history, and then to see them become these basically global warrior figures. Now, they 
they they weren't like samurai cutting people's heads off, but they were warriors all the same. That's why they're loved in Japan, China, um, I, Italy. Uh, I, I can name, I could go through all the countries that have printed and reprinted these books about these guys. And, and that reversal is an astounding and wonderful and important thing for our world. And it's multifaceted. It's not just basketball, but basketball is a big part of it. And magic played such a role in that. The thing I find so disheartening is how the game has been intentionally changed and has moved away from a lot of that. Now, it's swinging back around a little bit, but a lot of the things that brought us this special appreciation are really no longer allowed in today's game. And so uh, you wonder if a generation of players like the ones we've discussed, Larry and Magic and Michael and Kobe and and those guys came along. I think they'd be great in any era. But the way the game is played today, I don't know. We're about to see. We're we're seeing remarkable young players in today's NBA. I, I'm just not sure if certain fi powerful figures didn't sort of juice the game of basketball for their own designs. And we've ended up with um, a, a much more flawed product. I'm not sure of that yet. I may just be some old guy grumbling. So we'll have to we'll have to reserve judgment on that. But I wonder and worry about that because I do love basketball. You know, Roland, we we have a couple minutes left, and one of the things that that does come across in your book is not just magic on the court, not just magic as an international figure, but magic as a, as a business person. And, and it seems like Magic, Michael, those players from that generation were able to mo monetize is one word, but but able to build upon the career that they had on a court to building businesses in communities. Um, what did what have you learned from from talking to people about Magic, about the movie theaters, about everything else that he's done about Magic, the mind? I had fascinating conversations with Peter Gooper, who was chairman of uh, Sony uh, in the early Sony USA in the early 90s. They were building theaters. He gets a call from Magic Johnson, who wants a meeting. And uh, and these two black guys show up at the meeting, Magic Johnson and his money guy, who is a really, really sharp money guy. And they propose that there's this great overlook, a segment of the market black neighborhoods where Sony should build theaters. Goober was quite taken with the presentation. The money people from Sony looked at it up and down, said, hell yeah. And that was Magic's first big success in the business world. And it was substantial. Uh, you know, he later went on and sold those theaters and has moved on to just an absolute whirlwind, an absolute whirlwind of business enterprise. He's got every kind of a business uh, operation. You can imagine insurance companies, uh, um, all kinds of contracting companies, all of it aimed at elevating economic opportunity for black Americans. And that that is part of his great mission. And uh, it, it is very impressive. Um, it, I, I just the, the nuts and bolts of it are very impressive. 
And it makes this, I mean, I mean, it's a great basketball story, but it's so much bigger. The fact that he was HIV, HIV positive, that he really was out of control. Um, that's a function of that whole climate in, in the 1980s in Los Angeles and frankly, all over the place. But he, he became caught up in having lots and lots and lots of unprotected sex. It really made him an, an unliked figure. Uh, uh, people wept when he resigned abruptly. But as the story came out and he was seemingly too eager to talk about it, it became a great negative. But it, it didn't matter. He was able to th- this this great, great emotional intelligence and humanity that he possessed enabled him and his great drive and heart and enabled him to overcome all of that and to make the kind of gains and to create the kind of uh, example that make this a truly great American story, one that took me 800 pages to tell. Well, and we encourage people to pick up that book, read all 800 pages to learn the story for themselves. The book is Magic, The Life of Irvin Magic Johnson. Roland Lazenby, thank you so much for the time. We wish you the best of luck with the book and look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for your extremely thoughtful questions and slowing me down on a day when I'm going much too fast. You guys have a great day. Jeff, just one last thought after those great interviews today. I'm going to surprise you. Not basketball, not baseball, not football. The Flyers are actually fun. That's right. They are fun, and I can't wait to watch more. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.